Tonight we continue our study of John's first epistle, 1 John, called quite often, as we have said quite often, the epistle of certainties, but also designated at times as the epistle of, of love, from the apostle of love. And the section that we begin to study tonight, beginning with chapter 3 and verse 1, through verse 12 of chapter 5, has really been designated as a section of this great epistle that could be summarized by the statement, God is love. And it helps us to understand and appreciate why the epistle itself has often been called the epistle of love as well as the epistle of certainties because the word love is used so many times and the concept of love is touched upon and dealt with so much by John in this first epistle. And this section, 3, 1 through 5, 12, is just an example of that. God is love. But the designation of the epistle of certainties is because of the certainty that is expressed time and time again in this epistle. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, 1 John 2 and verse 3. And so some form of the word knowledge or know is used is used time and time again, 32 times in the book. The word love, 26 times. And so it is a great epistle that tells us that we can know where we are with God. We can know that our relationship is just what God would have it be with him, that we are in covenant relationship with him. And we know that all of that was made possible because of the boundless, matchless love of God. And with that thought in mind, we look at verse 1 of chapter 3, where John calls upon us to behold. And we stop right there with that first word in that first verse of chapter 3 and realize that John wants us to take some time to see something that is vitally important for us to see, to give attend, attention to it, not to casually glance at it, but to, to give attention to and attend to something, to behold it, to see it, to see it as we should see it, not with a casual glance, as we said. What is it that John wants his readers to behold? He tells us what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Oh, so much time could be spent right here with this first sentence in this section of this great epistle. Give attention to, attend to something, look at it carefully, look at it as you should. What is it, John? The manner of love. Not just the quantity of love, the boundless nature of that love, but look at the quality of the love that God has bestowed on us. Not the love that we earned and, and expected God to give us because we had earned it. That's not a possibility. It is the love that God has freely given us, and that's the idea of the word bestowed. He has literally given it to us. It is summarized beautifully, the manner of this love, by the same writer in the golden text of the Bible, as we often call it, in his 
Gospel account, John writes in John 3.16, the words of Jesus. He records those words. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave, bestowed upon us, literally gave, his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nothing we have done, nothing we could have done, could possibly have caused God to say, I must now send my Son because... These people have earned it. That's not a possibility. We know that. It is by His grace, it is by His mercy, it is by His boundless, matchless love that He has bestowed upon us a relationship that John next considers that is a relationship that is sweeter than any relationship that we sustain in this life, no matter how sweet that relationship is, no matter how long-standing that relationship is. There are those here tonight who've been in wonderful marriage relationships for more than 60 years. That's a long time, a long time. And the smiles that that thought evoked from those who have been in that relationship, as I see some of those smiles right now, (laughs) indicate that those relationships are tender and dear indeed. And yet, even the sweetness of those relationships pale in comparison to what John tells us we are privileged to have with the Father in heaven. What is that relationship that we should be called children of God? John says, I want you to think carefully and look carefully at that. I want you to see the kind of love, the quality of love, the quantity of love that has made possible a relationship that is sweeter than any other relationship in this life. And it's a relationship that will never end, as far as God is concerned, unless you choose to act in such a way as to end it on your part. Once you become a child of God, then you are a child of God. You may forfeit that sweet relationship by your unfaithfulness to the Lord, but the Lord will always be there. He'll never leave you. He will not leave His children. He will rebuke His children, and He does through His Word. He will renounce the relationship if we turn our backs upon that relationship. But as long as we love him who first loved us, as John in this same epistle writes at 1 John 4, 19, if we love him because he first loved and we maintain that love and maintain our appreciation for that relationship to be children of God, then he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And that is the promise that we have as John has already written in 1 John 2, 25, remember? And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Eternal life, where we will, as John is about to tell us, see him, the Christ, God the Father, the Spirit, face to face. What a relationship John is telling us to behold and calling upon us to fully appreciate the love that has made that relationship 
possible. Because without that love, there's no way we could have possibly earned our way into that, worked our way into that relationship. That relationship would have been impossible without the love of heaven being given to us, being bestowed on us so that we can be called children of God. How do we become children of God? It is stated at the conclusion of every sermon, isn't it? We become those children by a belief in Jesus the Christ as the Son of God that leads us to repent of our sins, confess Him as the Christ, and then to be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. And we rise from that watery grave cleansed by the blood of Christ, which was so lovingly shed on Calvary so long ago, to walk in newness of life. And as we rise from that watery grave, our relationship with this world has changed completely. And that's where John takes us next. Therefore, therefore, because you are children of God, if you are children of God, having obeyed the gospel of Christ, the world, he says, does not know us because it did not know him. The world did not know Christ. Therefore, when we become followers of Christ, children of God and followers of Christ, the world does not know us. Now, obviously, John doesn't mean that the world doesn't know that we exist. The world in which we live knows that we exist. The world in which we live knows if we're Christians or not. If they're around us very long, they can know that we're Christians. They know that we're here. They just simply do not see to follow and to know the God whom we serve. In other words, this world does not approve of us is the idea. It knows of our existence, but it does not approve or follow our existence. But we're in very good company in that situation, are we not? And that's what John tells us. You're in the best company you can be if you are in that situation where the world no longer approves of you because you're no longer like the world. Because that's exactly the attitude that the world in which Jesus came, gave up equality with God, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's the world into which the, the Lord came and that's how the world viewed him. It did not, for the most part, know him in the sense of recognizing him and confessing him to be the Son of God and obeying him as the Son of God. In John's account of the gospel, once again, at John 15 and verse 18, as Jesus addressed his apostles, he said this to them, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He goes on to say, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. That's what he was reminding his apostles of. And then he reminded them of something else at verse 20 in that context. He said, remember the word which I said to you. And what was that word? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, he said, they will persecute you. If they kept my word they will keep your word also. It simply depends upon the attitude of heart. 
And there are some people whom we will encounter who will appreciate, at least to some extent, the stand that we take for the Lord. There will, there will be some who will appreciate it to the extent that they will be magnetized by our influence and ultimately, hopefully, enter into that same sweet relationship that we have the, with the Lord as a result of our influence and our opportunity to teach them. There are others who will find that completely repulsive and they will actually abuse, verbally at least, those who are standing for Christ. And there are those, as we have referenced recently, in foreign lands especially now, who are being more than verbally abused. New Testament Christians, New Testament Christians have been killed upon the continent of Africa by radical Muslims who have taken their lives in groups, not just individually, but have killed them in groups, in groups. And so, even in our time, and who knows what the time to come may hold, even in this country, the world, indeed, as John refers to the world here, does not know us. And because the world does not know us and did not know the Lord, it sometimes chooses to persecute those who do know the Lord in ways that will evoke within us an opportunity to either stand for the Lord or renounce Him. But if we understand and appreciate to the fullest extent the love that has been bestowed upon us and the relationship into which we have been blessed to enter, then hopefully we will have the courage to stand against whatever comes and to realize that the worst thing that can happen to the child of God, the worst thing the opponent of the child of God can do is take that body and kill it. But he can never kill the soul. And what did Jesus say about that? Don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. Fear the Lord. Reverence him. Respect him. Serve him. And serve him out of love. Beloved, John goes on, we are now children of God. Beloved, and there's that tender expression that John used more than once. Beloved, now we are children of God. That's what we are. Not what we hope to be one day, but we are children of God if we are Christians. And then he goes on, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. What we shall be. What we shall be when? Well, he tells us when. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. John is talking about the hereafter. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. And he says there are things about that second coming and the state in which we will find ourselves that have not been explained to us in full detail. And we all have to admit that that we do not know every detail about the transformation of this physical body that is going to take place. We just know that that transformation is going to occur 
We don't know every detail about the afterlife. We just know of its certainty, and we know of the certainty of our being blessed to be with the Lord if we conduct ourselves properly here in this life. And he'll reiterate that in just a moment in verse 3, the final verse that we'll look at tonight. He says, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We're not there yet, but what we are is children of God here and now. And don't lose sight of that, that we have that sweetest of all relationships now. And if we will maintain that relationship, then when He is revealed, we know this, we are going to be like Him. Don't take that statement lightly. We are going to be like Him. How is Christ? He's sinless, isn't He? Always has been, always will be sinless. Will we be like Him in that respect when He comes and when we are there for eternity? Will we be, will we be spiritually like Christ? Of course we will be. There'll be no sin in heaven. There'll be no sin for those whose relationship is sustained faithfully even unto death as a child of God. He will be like Him in that respect. He will be like Him in terms of the spiritual body that He will possess, that will be transformed from this earthly tabernacle. But the faithful child of God will also be like Him spiritually, living for eternity in a sinless, joyful environment that can never again be changed. An environment that the devil can never enter and can never disrupt with his temptation and with sin. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, you see the Apostle Paul making a very similar statement here as he reminds the Philippians, and thus us for all time to come, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So there's no question about the fact that our body will be like his glorious body. But we'll also be like him in terms of those spiritual characteristics because we've been in him now. We can be like him then. What a beautiful thought. What a motivational thought that should be. That we will not only see him as he is, but we will be like him, John tells us. But here's the key. And everyone who has this hope in him, the American Standard says set on him, that is the hope set on Christ, Everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. What is hope? Hope is desire coupled with expectation, as we have often said. It is not wishful thinking. 
It is not simply desire for something. It is desire coupled with an expectation of receiving it. That's biblical hope. And John says that those who have this hope, this desire to one day see him as he is, to one day be as he is, everyone who has that hope set on him or in him must do something in order to ultimately realize that hope and to have that hope fade into marvelous, joyous reality as we see him face to face. What is it we must do? Purify ourselves. And the word purify is in that present active indicative, which means keep on purifying. In other words, it is a process that must continue as long as life continues. We keep on purifying ourselves. Does that mean we can live above sin? That John is saying that ultimately you can purify yourself so that you are above sin? Of course not. It says just the opposite. It reminds us of what he's already written in 1 John 1, 7 through 9, that the purification process for the one who has that hope set on Christ is what? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses, keeps on cleansing us from sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, again, present active indicative, keep on cleansing us from all iniquity. The purification process is clearly set forth in 1 John 1, 7 through 9. And John reminds us here in 1 John 3, 3, that we must keep up that process. Keep up that walk in the light as he is in the light. Keep on confessing the sins that we inevitably commit because we're human, but we want to be, we want to be divine. In other words, we want to be like divinity. That's our goal. Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, here... John basically conveys the same idea. Purify yourself in emulation of what standard? The perfect standard of purity. Just as he is pure. That's your goal, is to be as pure as he is. Can you accomplish that in and of yourself? Of course not. You can't live above sin. John's already said that. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying you can be as pure as Christ, sinless, but you can be you can be in Christ and ultimately as Christ is when you see him as he is and sin no longer troubles you but in the meantime you can still win the victory over sin by following the process that John has already given us in 1 John 1 7 through 9 keep on walking in the light what is the light the light is God's revealed word Denying that you sin? No. If you deny that you sin, you deceive yourselves. The truth can't be in you there. But confess those sins. Do your best to avoid them. Pray to God for forgiveness when those sins enter your life. And keep up that walk. And as you do, the blood keeps on cleansing. If you have the hope of ultimately seeing him as he is, and being rid of sin once and for all, where it can never trouble you again, where there'll never be a, sh a tear that is shed 
never be a pain once again in your body because your body will no longer be the kind of body that you have now. If you have the hope of all of that set on him, then out of the love that he has shown in making possible the sweetest relationship on this earth, being a child of God, then keep yourself pure and give yourself wholly to being pure. Not sinless, though that's your goal. But when you fall short, give thanks to God for the love that made possible the shedding of his blood, the blood that is able to cleanse you even when you fall as you keep up that walk in the light. How are you walking tonight? In the light or in the darkness? How does the world feel about you tonight? Jesus said, if you're following me, just as they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They won't know that is approve of you any more than they approved of me. What's your relationship with the world? Too much like it? Or have you truly separated yourself from it in the only way that you can? By coming to the feast. The feast that awaits the one who will enter into the sweetest relationship that has ever been or ever shall be possible for mankind to be called children of the Father in heaven. And if you've known the sweetness of that relationship and the joy and the peace that come from that relationship, but you no longer have that joy and peace because you no longer walk where you once walked, then as a wayward child of God, come home, back to the old path, and walk therein, and you'll find rest for your souls. As we stand to sing, will you come?